0: You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.
1: So last night, one of the, one of the questions that was asked to me a couple times was what, along the lines of what Misa said, and I want to begin there today, I just want to touch on that and move on. But, but when, when I was talking last night about how the liturgy is actually this kind of doorway into reality, I think that works against the grain of a lot of our understandings of what worship is. For a, a great deal of my life growing up, going to like, you guys probably don't know about like Hume Lake or any of those kind of places, but yeah, you do? Okay. We, this, this worship for me was this like other world that was this escape from the world that I was in. And it was just like this really sacred, precious experience. But then I, I knew at some point that that worship moment was gonna end and then I had to go back into the real world. And I don't know when it occurred to me. Uh, It was probably just probably in worship. Uh, that Maybe maybe I have this backwards. Maybe what I'm coming in touch with here is reality. And maybe the thing that I'm going to experience and go back to isn't quite the truest, most real thing. Um, I was talking to Chelsea last night uh, about this. And an image that sticks out to me that I wanted to share with you all if it's helpful and useful. And we're going to actually get at this a little bit more. Re- worship is like a tuning fork or the Eucharist even coming to receive the Eucharist is like a tuning fork if we want to hear a C um, And we don't have perfect pitch we strike the tuning fork and the tuning fork uh, gives us the C and through these vibrations and coming coming in contact and coming and coming close to this thing We kind of acquire the properties of that C and we can begin to hum it, right? Well, the whole Eucharist even in the elevation is kind of like this tuning fork of what is true, what is beautiful what is most true, in fact, what is most beautiful, what is most good. And we don't just get to hear it, we consume it. And when we consume Holy Eucharist, we're actually being consumed into the life of God. He's not being added onto our life, we're being brought into his. Not when you release those people into the world who have this perfect pitch now, this sea ringing in their heads, this Jesus, presence of God, Holy Eucharist. And you release them into the world. I wonder what what happened. Um, Where we're going to spend our time today, and and, um, we're going to look at two moments in liturgy to explore this together. Where we're going to spend our time today is dealing with a little bit, we're going to begin with the concept of worship in general. And we're going to move into, and I, I want to bring us away from this thing where, um, that you may have heard, like worship is formative. Yes, it's formative. Worship means something. Yes, of course it means something. Worship stands for something, um, or it's, it's like symbolic in some way. Yes, all those things are good. I'm not knocking on all of those things. But what I really want us to deal with this morning is that worship is actually a thing. We don't come into worship saying these words and coming to receive Holy Communion, um, so that we can think, not track with me here, because this is, I grew up like this. Um, learning to think in new ways and mimicking the things that we see in worship so that we can then go into the world and uh, mimic those same things. Like it's a training ground. Yes, it happens to be a training ground, but it is not primarily the thing about worship. Does that make sense? It's not like, it is a school for Christians, certainly. But that's like second or third in the list of what would describe worship appropriately. Um, another way of thinking about this, and, and I'll land, uh, you'll see what I mean in just a second. Um, people, people ask, like, well, how do we get at mission? How do, we, how do we pursue the goodness of God for the sake of other people? And immediately, if I was to ask you guys, how do you, how do you pursue mission? How do you participate with God in the neighborhood? I guarantee you, and if you're like me, you're going to start thinking in terms of, like, well, we got to get really good at sharing our faith, uh, we've got to get really comfortable with the gospel story. We've got to do acts of kindness, like what Father Rob was describing. We've got to embody this kind of love that's self-giving and is concerned for the good of others before the good of ourselves. Yeah, those are like really good behaviors. Sure, sure certainly. that's. And those things even are, are formed in us in worship. But before all of that, worship is actually its own thing. If we really believe that in worship we're encountering the reality of God... That doesn't mean something. That's not symbolic for something. That is something. It's like me having a conversation with Julie and thinking the entire time, oh, I'm learning how to talk to a human being. Mm -hmm. And missing the fact that I get to talk to Julie. Mm -hmm. We come to worship so often praying these words, going through these motions, thinking, oh, this is good. Like I'm learning more about the Bible I'm learning more about what it means to be a Christian so that when I enter back into the real world, I can like maybe be a better Christian. And we miss the point that we're actually communing with God. It's a thing. It's reality in the first place. It's, it's a thing that we get to encounter. So when we ask a question like, how does the church, how do people like you and I, regular folks, engage in God's activity in the world on mission? How do we work with them. How do we cooperate with them? How do we participate with what God is actually doing in the world? I want to make the claim, and this is what we talked about last night. I'm going to pick it up. We're going to move forward with it. The central claim that I'm making, that the most important thing we can do is actually worship. Think about this. I'm not saying go evangelize people first thing. That's good. Good and gravy. Like, go for it. But the most important thing you can do is, is worship God yourself to actually spend time with him, to pursue union with him, and not treat worship as some sort of tool or some sort of instrument or some sort of symbol that like models the Christian life to you. Maybe it does, but you're missing the point. This is an opportunity to come in contact with the living God. We began this last night saying, acknowledging not good morning, everybody. How you doing? You know what? Who cares about y'all? Blessed be God. He's here. He's here. Oh, and hey, everybody, welcome. That subtle shift, I think, actually makes a really dramatic difference in our lives. So I want to look at worship <clears throat> not as a symbol, not as some training ground. And again, I'm not knocking all that stuff, but I think it can actually sometimes get lost in the mix of all that is realizing that worship is a thing itself. We're actually coming into union and communion with God. There's two points, two parts of the liturgy that I think we would re- really like boneheads. If we, if we didn't see what was happening in these moments. And I've, I'm a bonehead because it's passed me up several times. I mean, it still passes me up, unless I'm, my eyes are wide open to it. And these two moments that I want to look at is the gospel reading. You guys know that moment where the gospel book is retrieved from the altar and brought into the, to the people, and we read that? You guys still do that, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Gospel. Okay, good. Good job, Rob. <laughs> And the other thing is um, at the table. There's a greater, the great elevation, um, or the the elevation where we say, "Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world." And the the broken bread and the chalice are held up. Do you guys know that moment? I want to focus on those two moments because they're actually kind of one moment. They're one part of the same motion, and I want to look at that. Um, Does anyone have John? Does anyone have a Bible on them? Yeah. Can you flip it open? I want to look at a couple passages. John 1, In between these moments, I'm going to give us like a 10-minute break so we can shake our legs, run a few laps. John 1, verse 14, and then can someone else look up John 5, starting at verse 2? John 1, 14. Who has that? Anybody? Uh, verse 14. Go ahead, Boomy. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we
2: beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you do
1: word? No, that's good. Does anyone have another translation? Anyone have the message on them? Or what do you have?
3: I have an R.C.
1: Yeah, do that one.
3: Uh, and the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son,
2: full of grace and
1: truth. Y'all, there's so much in this. That's why like, putting all these translations next to each other help bring out what's, what's going on in this, just this one single verse. Let me read for us um, how Eugene Peterson translates this in the message. The same, same passage. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. This is what's happening in the liturgy. When we retrieve the gospel book, we're reenacting this reality because you know why? It's so easy for us to not believe that this happened in real human history. Teeth, hair, personality—he ate things. The invisible God became flesh and blood. Oftentimes, uh, I don't know if you've ever encountered this, but we'll treat this reality called the incarnation. We'll treat it like a like an adjective or some sort of symbol. Like, well, we should be incarnational. We'll throw an al on it, and it becomes like an analogy for the Christian life, for ministry. And uh, again, great. But when we do that at the expense of actually treating this as a real historic event on the human timeline in Palestine with a human being, we, we actually forfeit a really robust, under, like a true understanding of what God's up to in the world. When we retrieve the gospel book, what we're acknowledging is that the word of God, the word of our missionary God, you could see has come among God's people and pitched his tent, made a home for himself, actually began to fulfill the promise that we hear even in Revelation. The promise that he gave to us in the garden when he walked around with Adam and Eve to dwell with his people, he is tabernacling with us like he did with the tribes of Israel. We see it all throughout Scripture. And so when when we take this Gospel book, the entire narrative of scripture God willing his people is being enacted do we see that in this moment or is this just kind of a convenient way of you all being able to hear the words of Jesus no this is this is something that's radical that's happening if you think about this this one claim just we haven't even said anything we well we do pray something while this is happening but even in just the motion of coming into the people we're making a claim about reality we're saying God is not somewhere else Too busy for you. God is not uh, preoccupied with other things. God has actually emptied himself to be with you. He wants to be with you, among you. This, for God, is heaven. To be with his people. To be with his people. He wants you. And he's come among you. Sometimes we make it to the gospel reading without either being knocked over or drawn to tears in the reality of a God who spent so much, like gave it all up, emptied himself of all that he had to be with you. Like, I don't know about y'all, but I'm kind of a chump. I've got problems. And to be confronted with a God who wants to pursue me, to be near me, I don't know if I can fit that in my head. And in this moment, we, we see, and it's kind of uncomfortable, especially if you're like, uh, you don't like attention being brought to you and you happen to stand next to the person who's reading the gospel. It's kind of uncomfortable <laughs> because people are like, they're in my personal space. Take that discomfort and like dwell on that. Let that be prayer. God, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with you being this close. This is like insufferably close. And like, Chelsea's uncle is your uncle? He imposes himself on us. He's like, I don't really... Care, I love you, and I'm going to be near you. <laughs> now, can we just pause there for a second? Can you see how this motion of of the revelation of God's word taking on flesh and blood and moving into our lives, how that is missionary? Can you see that? So when we say, like we want to be a missional people or something, cool, yeah, you should do that. But first, realize that we have a missionary God, who, again, has started that motion. And before we go out into the world and start evangelizing and doing good works and loving people as we should, it's all great, it's good. Before we do that, we've got to attend. We would be fools to not attend to the God who's come and dwelt among us, to miss this moment, this thing that's happening to us, for us. What if we could become the kinds of people that in these moments of worship, we weren't concerned with what was going to happen next. We were just so enthralled and captivated by the God who's come near to us. What if we could learn to really dwell on that moment really well? To take it all in. And even when the music cues up again and the deacon wants to go back, we say, No, 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 just stay here for a second. <laughs> Let us take this in for a minute. I think if we could actually embrace that, we might become the kinds of people that go out into the world and can inhabit the world as an ambassador of God's presence, all the better. Don't you think? Mm-hmm. Joseph Ratzinger, the, the former pope, Pope Emeritus Benedict, you might know him, he says this. Mission, and keeping in mind God with us, this is what's happening. Ratzinger says, mission must spring from a more profound source than that which gives rise, rise to resource planning and operational strategies. Mm-hmm that are shaped in that way. Pause. He's saying mission has got to come from a better place than gimmicks and like car giveaways and, and like the bait and switch or incentives. It's got to come from a more profound place than that, doesn't it? I mean, and we're like, we, I mean, we're, we're from California, most of us, right? We, we are so advertised to, and yet most of it doesn't really, we don't think work on us. We kind of see through it. We can tell when someone wants something from us. All Ratzinger is saying is mission's got to spring from a much better place than, like, incentives, wanting something from people. How do we relocate the motivation in our hearts for mission? How do we overhaul the inside of us that really just kind of sometimes wants a notch on our belt to say, I brought that person to Jesus. Isn't that awesome? How, How ugly is that? I think the way that we renovate our heart, the way that we are overhauled it within, is to actually deal squarely and presently and fully be attentive to the God who has made his dwelling among us. To take that in. To remember, in fact, before there is some mission outside, you are the mission. You are the mission. You're the one that God has chased down and brought into the fold. Sorry, I interrupted Ratzinger. It's got to spring from a better place than incentives. He says this, it must spring from a source both deeper deeper And higher than advertising and persuasion. After all, the church, the existence of the church, is not the result of persuasion. The church doesn't exist because we're good evangelists. I know I'm offending some people now. Like, ooh, where's he going with this? The church is not the result of persuasion, but as a result of Christ's life incarnate, first and foremost. His work, His proclamation, His suffering, His death, His resurrection, His ascension. The church is a result of that. God's move first among us. God with us. Friends, I think if we can recover a wonder about the incarnation, this thing that's actually this reality, we should, if we can recover a sense about that, that we can actually place our trust in this thing. Not just saying... Yeah, Sean, the, the, the incarnation, that theology is really interesting. I, I believe that. Not to talk about it like we're separated from it, um, but like to use an example. I believe in steps. I believe in stairs. It, there's one right there. That's different than saying, I believe in stairs. Right? How do, we, how do we put our full weight of trust, how do we actually put our life, kind of make our home, make our dwelling As our main reference point, our anchor, how how does the incarnation become that for us? Not just we believe that God became flesh and blood, but actually tending to his presence that has come near to us. How do we receive that and build our home on that? We may not know much about how life works, but we do know that we have a missionary God who's taken on flesh and blood and come to us in our weakest moment when we couldn't come to him. How inconceivable that God would come to us, and yet he did. Eastern Orthodoxy emphasizes the Incarnation as like being salvific. It saves us, which is an interesting concept because if you've come from like where I've come from, the cross is what saves us. And that's certainly part of it. But check this out. This missionary God who's come to dwell among us, he doesn't just come and visit, but in becoming flesh and blood, he's like taken on our nature. He's taken on our baggage, our stuff. He's become one of us. And and what happened? So and he's done this, and he's and he's died for us. He's been raised from the dead. And then where does the gospel book go next? Anybody know? When they're done? Oh, it goes back, right? So let's just set up some sort of cosmology real quick right here, okay? If this is the heavenly realm, the presence of God, the eternal God, the invisible God. And he's taken on flesh and blood and dwelt among us. Taken on our nature. right? (laughs) Taken on our sinful nature, our life. Has made it right in the justice of God. Has atoned for it. Offers us the forgiveness of sins. And now we are in baptism, like, eternally connected with (laughs) God the Son. And then he takes us with him. Sorry, Mike. (laughs) and ascends to the right hand of the Father, never letting go of his human nature. Check this out, people. Never letting go of his human nature, ascending to God the Father in the Holy Trinity. Y'all, there is a human being with the Father right now. Like toenails (laughs) are in the presence of God the Father, interceding for us praying for us, working all things for our good, managing the cosmos. The course of human history right now is being controlled by a human being in the presence of God the Father. And they've sent the Spirit not to abandon us, but to be with us, to fill us. This is a wildly different view of reality. This is why I say in the liturgy, y'all, there's something here to it. Y'all means you all, by the way, I'm from Texas. I keep saying that, but I'm not from Texas. I live there right now. I'm learning these things. There is a reality in the liturgy that is trying to tune us, like a tuning fork, to say, you, you all don't, see, you all don't recognize what's what's true and real. But if we actually attend and pay attention to liturgy, we're given the most the most basic clues, the most fundamental cues about what is actually real and true and good. How things actually are. And I know it may be hard to believe, and that's okay. Help my unbelief, Lord. But first we've got to deal squarely with this is the way it is. And anything other than that. Is really an aberration. It's just—it's strange. It's different. It, it has to make uh, it make its adjustments to fit to this reality, to this truth. It has to conform to what we see here in the incarnation and in the ascension. If we want to understand the gospel, that God is reconciling all things to Himself. And if we want to see God participate with him in the neighborhood, go out into the world and participate in this gospel mission, this kingdom coming, we have to understand the incarnation of God. Otherwise, we go out into the world with like positive emotions and thoughts and a set of ideas that hopefully can be persuasive. And out of persuasion, we build the church and like the budget works. And it's like really lame. Like, let's not do that. Who wants? That sounds terrible. That sounds life-taking. But if we actually attend to the Incarnation, we're operating on a totally different ground all of a sudden. Now, we're not doing something that God hasn't done and doesn't continue to do. In fact, now we're participating with God. We're just going with Jesus into the neighborhood, filled with his spirit, to bring about the kingdom, to participate with his work. Man, could we have eyes to see that? Every every Sunday, I celebrate Eucharist, and there's this guy who sits in the back. His name's John. I love him. And he when we celebrate the Eucharist, and I think it starts at the gospel reading, he just starts weeping. And I almost lose it. I'm like, dude, stop it. (laughs) But the prayer, every time I see him, I'm like, Lord, I want to see it like that. Give me eyes. I want to see that. Because he's seeing something that's renovating him. He's becoming a different kind of person from what he's seeing. He doesn't have to think so much about, well, how do I be a Christian in the world? How do I have like really good apologetics so I can corner people and manipulate them into the kingdom, into the gospel or something? No, he's just like, once I was blind, now I see. Have you seen this? It changes everything. What a more, what a much more beautiful and compelling way of being missionaries in the world. Who has John five? Anybody got John five chapter verse two? Just
2: uh, verse
1: two. Verse two. We're going to read it through nineteen one. I kind of like tricked you into that one. There. Uh,
2: verse
3: two 19.
1: Yeah, Let me make sure this is correct. Yeah, we've we'll just started verse 1 since it's there and go all the way to 19. Two big paragraphs. You know what, just read all of chapter 5 now. Right. After this, a Jewish festival took place and Jesus went up to
3: Jerusalem. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there's a pool called Bethesda in Hebrew, which has five colonies. Within these lay a multitude of the sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed waiting for the moving of the water, because an angel would go down to the pool from time to time and stir up the water. Then the first one who got in after the water was stirred up, recovered from whatever ailment he had. One man was there who had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the sick man answered, I don't have a man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your bedroll and walk. Instantly, the man got well picked up his bedroll and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, This is the Sabbath. It is illegal for you to pick up your bedroll. He replied, The man who made me well told me, Pick up your bedroll and walk. Who is this man who told you, Pick up your bedroll and walk? They asked. But the man who was cured did not know who it was, because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that after this, Jesus found him in the temple complex and said to him, see, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus responded to them, my father is still working and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with then Jesus replied, I assure you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son also does these things in the same
1: way. Hmm. What strikes you about considering what having eyes to see and cooperate with God, doing what he's doing, what strikes you about this passage? Anything?
0: What's that?
1: That's really good. Yeah. Like a event, like, um, me. This is really inconvenient. <laughs> I think Jesus asking him if he wants to get well. That's what's struck me about that passage. It's like, yeah, it's just an interesting <laughs> Like, <passage>. of course. <laughs> Like are you seriously asking me this? Yes. But it's an important question, yeah. nevertheless, right? Yeah. What we're doing isn't actually meeting that need. This may be like a really obvious question. Oh go ahead. Jonah. Oh,
2: I, I think it's interesting that uh, the turn in it is uh, his response is do you want to be well? And then the answer is I have no one to put me into the pool.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jesus tells him to do something. He's waiting for other people uh. to do things and then Jesus says, get up. So he does. That
3: is interesting. I find it strange that he turned them in. Like or like or just what was going on in his heart that he
1: was like, oh, it was Jesus. And then Jesus faces persecution after that. Like after 38 years. You kinda could see why Jesus would keep telling his disciples, like, don't say anything <laughs> about what you've seen here. You know? Be quiet and they, they do, anyways. They can't help themselves. Yeah. Talk about like evangelism training. Don't tell anyone. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> hey. Thomas, did you have something? Yeah, I just think he didn't really know the person that healed him. He's like, I don't know, some dude. <laughs>
1: Can we, can we look at that for a second, Thomas? I think there's something, this is like a really convenient segue. This is kind of the point I wanted, one of them I wanted to draw out of this. Who sees who first in this? Jesus sees him. Well, obviously, right? The guy's blind. Like, he can't see. Right? Like, not a really profound question, I know. <laughs> But Jesus sees this man. The man doesn't pursue Jesus. He's kind of like minding his own business, wanting to be healed, and yet God comes to him. What has he done to deserve that?
2: Absolutely
1: nothing. Man. Jesus heals him. He sees he's made well. And Jesus starts to command him to do things. Stand up. Take your mat. And then Jesus begins to be harassed. You're not doing things the way that we do things in this town. Jesus. How does Jesus defend himself?
0: That was what I found interesting in there, is that his first response is, god's working today you know if god's working then why can't anybody else work it's kind of like it's not a you're only you're only going out there and 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 acting in god's name six days a week but you can't do it himself right it's kind of like no if, if god's present today then we can be present today that's to me it's a command that
1: yeah when is god not present right? You know, we'll stop when he's like not present. That's you know.
0: what struck me is kind of like you know yeah we can do this six days but not the seventh that's God's day and it's like well God wants us to be present every day.
1: Hmm. How does Jesus know that God is present or that He's doing anything? This is the most curious verse in this entire thing. My father's still working. Verse seventeen. And I also am working. Verse 18. For this reason the Jews are seeking all the more to kill me because he was not only breaking bread on the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father, thereby making himself equal to God. Verse 19. Jesus said to them, Look, y'all. Verily, verily, truly, truly, very truly. Amen, amen. I tell you, like, listen up. Here's my rebuttal to all of your problems with this. The son can do nothing on his own but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Good talk. What did Jesus see the Father doing? He saw the Father healing this man. And so he kind of went along with it. Okay, that's what you're doing? Let's do it. In order to see what the Father is doing, Jesus has to be in communion with the Father, the one. So intimately connected that the motion of one is the motion of the other. There's there's no difference between the two in their work. How could we see what the Father is doing? How could... Is it possible that mission and like healing and evangelism and these things are just the fruit of keeping in step with what the Father is doing? How would we see him doing these things and that be the impulse that leads us into the world? Well, we would have to be in communion with him, right? Do you see how attending to your worship life, your life of prayer, your receiving of the sacraments, is actually drawing you into union with God and how that is probably the most important thing that Santa Cruz could have going for it is that there are Christians communing with God. Can you imagine all of the blind people in every sense in Santa Cruz County who, having read this story, would say, oh, man, if only Jesus was here. If only his people were here. If only they were in communion with him could see what he was doing and just like go along with it. Can you imagine Santa Cruz County? Friends, I think that the liturgy, and this isn't just like Sean's nifty opinion. This has just been the way Christians have worshipped since the beginning. Was with this really strange curiosity that God's actually present. He's come among us. And he's ready and willing and able to give us the eyes of faith to be able to recognize what he's doing and to participate with him. To hear his voice, for instance, like I could call Michelle and recognize her voice. She doesn't have to say, hi, honey, it's Michelle. I, rec- I know her voice. Can you imagine if a people who could hear the, the words of Jesus again and again and again could be able to recognize his voice, the shepherd's voice? and obey him. That when we're out in the world and we hear his voice, we recognize those habits, those patterns, those things that he what he does, in some ways even just hearing the gospel words can actually tune us to recognize his leading and his voice. In some ways hearing is like seeing in that way, isn't it? When we recognize his voice in the gospels, we're able to participate in seeing him out in the world and in our own lives and doing what he does, to be in step with him. Does that make sense? I'm just going to beat you all over the head over this because I can't wrap my head around it. It's amazing. But we've really got to attend to the gospel reading. That's like a really important thing. It's not just a setup for the sermon. This is like a real thing that we get to hear, this is crazy, the words of Jesus in our language and to be with him, to have him near to us, to allow his words to penetrate us, that we would, as we pray, his words would always be on our mind, quick to our lips, forever in our heart. You know, you guys pray that? Mm-hmm. That's our prayer. Lord, we want these words to just so fill us and transform us and to become us. We want to be with you. Mm-hmm. Folks, we've got to attend to the liturgy. We've got to attend to these moments because in each moment of the liturgy, there's, there's just like mind-blowing kinds of things available to us if we're awake and available, and willing. The reality of the incarnation, this motion downward, and the ascension are now, I think, bookends for our understanding of mission. They should always be bookends for our understanding of mission. Even just asking the question like, look, hey, okay, they're going to share the gospel. Someone's going to invite Jesus into their heart. Now, what's the point? What next? Where is this all heading? Well, um, when you, there's good news. I mean, nothing now. You don't get any benefit now. But when you die... Um, you don't have to deal with his body anymore and you just kind of float away and I don't know, like streets of gold and harps and wings and stuff. Doesn't that sound nice? No, that sounds horrible actually. I like this place. I like surfing. I like salt water. I like good beer. I like food. I like friends. I like material things. God likes them too. And he actually created them good and has plans, good plans for them. And when we abandon the incarnation and we abandon the ascension, our mission starts to look like really disembodied, really uh, like merely spiritual, really in our hearts and in our heads, really then and not now. It like really distorts our mission, this mission of God that we get to participate in. But when we place these Pillars of the incarnation that God has actually taken on flesh and blood. He created this, by the way, in the first place. And now he's taking it on. The creator is taking on the creation. That's mind-blowing. But he's done that. He's not abandoned us. And then he takes His creation with him into the heavenly realm. And in that moment, we get to see the full scope of what God is planning and that we see in Revelation. That heaven and earth would not be far apart and separated, but it would actually become overlapping, folded into one another, participating with one another. That's what we're working toward. Where else do we see that in the world more clearly than in the liturgy, folks? In the liturgy, even in these little... We could like fly by these moments. Even in these little moments, we're seeing a glimpse of where everything is heading. The end is coming, rushing from the future to meet us. For God dwells with his people and we're taken up into the heavenly realm and we're existing in this place that is the new heavens and the new earth. God is making all things new. And all through his son, Jesus. We're seeing that even in this gospel reading. There are landmines everywhere in the liturgy and we've got to be careful because if you step on them, they will like blow your mind. (laughs) It's a very dangerous place, the liturgy. So I want to invite you as we um, continue to think through this, um, we're going to take a break in just a minute. I want to, I want to invite you to reconsider what's being represented here. and when, when that moment happens in liturgy from here on out, I want to invite you to continue to ask God, have mercy on me, Lord. Help me to see the reality of your incarnation. Help me to, to experience the love that you must have to come to me when I couldn't come to you. And not only just to abandon me, but to take me with you into your presence. Can we consider that as we worship? That our worship, these words, these motions, these things we go through, aren't just, um, like, when are we going to get through this? But it's actually our work. Liturgy means the work of the people. What can I do to serve you, Lord? Why don't we start with, like, worshiping him and doing it well, being attentive to it, taking care of these things? Because in these things, we find these surprises of the gospel. We find these surprises of what God's doing in our lives and what he's intending to do in the world. All right. We're going to do a, another moment of the liturgy in just a second. Um, but can we take a quick break? Five minutes? Five to 15 minutes?
2: <laughs>
1: Plus muscle manuals? Thirteen. The five minutes, Father Rob says. That's the look he used to give me when I would um, do things not according to plan.
2: <laughs>
1: I haven't seen that look in a while, Rob.
4: <laughs> <laughs> so, Sean, I was
5: just talking
1: All right, well, let's press on. Can I just go? Maybe
2: wait for your wife. Maybe wait for my wife. All
1: right. Um, I wanted to. just as we get going again, before I tell you a story and we start up, I want to hear, is, is there anything that you all are processing that you're kind of going, huh, that's interesting, it makes me think about this, or I have a question about that? Anything like that? Could you take just a minute or two to deal with before we move on?
2: Okay.
1: All right, we're going to um, spend some time together again, then I'll, I'll pause again for some questions, so if you guys have feedback or questions, I will would really love to, um, kind of workshop this a little bit with you and hear your thoughts and your reflections so keep that in mind. When I was um, I don't know how old I was. Honey, how old was I when my adorando, you know? I was like twenty-nine probably so when I was twenty-nine let's just say twenty-nine Uh, My favorite aunt passed away of a really long uh, battle with cancer. And she had been fighting it for for a few years, like six years probably. And she had passed away, and we were in the throes of seminary life, which was strange. And we drove all night from L.A. to El Paso, Texas, through Phoenix in the middle of the night in the desert. And we got to El Paso, and we walked, I mean we stayed the night somewhere and then we went to mass the next morning she was a Catholic and so there was this huge Catholic cathedral that my whole family and I have I have um, 13 aunts and uncles in this family Um, it's a strange story, their mother was actually a nun who uh, ended up leaving the convent and the doctor said you're not ever going to be able to have kids because of your body and she had um, 14 actually (laughs) so so my, my Aunt Joanne is one of these children, and we're in this, this cathedral that's beautifully lit, and I, as, as an evangelical, we were, uh, I was serving at a church that was, I think, four square, what was four square, right? Eagle Rock. Eagle yeah, four square. And um, so we had come to this kind of Catholic cathedral with just different expectations about a funeral, different kind of uh, a language for worship, just from a very different place. <clears throat> And as we're sitting there, I don't know if you all can ever relate to this, sitting in the liturgy thinking, what is going on? Like your first time seeing all of this, you're like, what is happening here? (laughs) I had this experience and I was seated like on that side of the room and the whole service was going on. I don't really remember most of it because probably I was really disoriented and confused for most of it. But then there was this moment where the priest, well, let let me describe what I was seeing too. So if you look, this is the cathedral, okay? And I'm over here. And off to this side is a casket, and it's open, and my Aunt Joanne, her body is there, and I can see her body. And there's this beautiful stone altar, and behind the stone altar was this big cross with the resurrected Christ kind of, like, exploding off, off of the cross, which is, it was really beautiful. I don't, that sounds like a terrible <laughs> description, but you get the idea. And... um this, this place is like filled with incense and so you can kind of see the light cutting through the, the, the smoke of the incense. And there was tons and tons of silence. I don't know if there was silence because I was in my own head or because there was actual silence. There might have been probably a little bit of both. But as I was sitting there, the priest gets up at some point in the service and he raises the cup and this wafer thing and he holds it up in silence. And I've looked at the liturgy and there's things that are said at that moment. There's things that are said in the moment for us as Anglicans in that moment in the liturgy. I don't remember any of that. All I remember was this priest holding the chalice and the bread. And it's as if time froze. And something in me broke. And I had no idea what was happening, but I knew that whatever was happening had everything to do with Jesus. Jesus. And that everything in my life had to change. Everything I thought I knew about what it meant to be his disciple had to change. How I I was praying, the way we were worshiping, the way I was spending my life, that actually mattered. And now, coming to this moment at the altar when this chalice and this bread are being held up, um, I knew instantly this is the hope of the Christian life. My entire life has to conform now to this, this is my point of reference. What is the hope of the Christian life? It's union with Christ. It's being with him. It's the hope of the resurrection. Because even though death and sin separate us, Christ is actually in his death and resurrection trampled over death itself. It's no longer a barrier. It's been put away. And now, not just so that we can be alive again, but that we can be alive in him, with him, in union with him. That moment in the service is called the greater elevation. And I didn't know it at the time, but what I was doing was a thing called like adoration, (laughs) where I was looking upon these gifts of bread and wine thinking, what is happening? God, how can this be? How do I know what I'm thinking right now, that this is the hope of the Christian life? No one's saying this to me. I grew up in a tradition where unless it was like preached and said verbatim, it wasn't being said. But now in this pure silence with this beautiful thing being held up before me, I knew that Jesus had made a way for us to be with him. And that changed everything. This is the moment of the greater elevation. It's the moment in the liturgy that I want to spend some time looking at with you um, before 1130. Right, so we got like 15 minutes. So it'll be a brief moment. Not bad. (laughs) (laughs) Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. This is what's said when we hold up the bread and wine. Do you know where these words come from? Why do we say these words? Anybody know? It's in the Bible. You You remember uh, John the Baptist at the Jordan? He's baptizing people. And then he sees... Jesus, what does he say? Mm -hmm. That's what he says.
4: Behold the Lamb of God.
1: Behold the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. John, baptizing people at the Jordan, recognizes Jesus, sees him. No one was saying (laughs) something to him. No one tapped his shoulder and said, now say this. But in this moment of what must have been I mean, think about this. John's whole life is to serve as a forerunner for this moment. This one moment leads, everything in his life leads up to this one moment to make this proclamation. He's probably standing in the Jordan River, baptizing people. Things are probably happening. But then there's this moment where he, kind of like this greater elevation moment, when he sees Jesus, he lays eyes on him and confesses this, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the same thing that we say in this moment, kind of as John's seeing Jesus recognizing him in the bread and the wine that he's offered himself. It's a little bit easier for us in some ways because Jesus has said, this is my body. This is my blood. And for those of us who go, that's tough. What does that even mean? This is my body. This is bread. This is my blood. This is wine. That's tough, Jesus. You must mean this like metaphorically, right? This is a symbol. Like we get it. John 6, Jesus says um, to those who push back, look, y'all, truly, truly, I tell you, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. He doesn't back off. He doesn't say, well, of course, I meant it metaphorically or symbolically. No, he, he like doubles down on the thing itself and says, unless you eat it, this is my flesh. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. This is the moment that we are all invited to like wrap our heads around when, when we see this great elevation, the, the bread and the wine being lifted up. Um, what I do want to say that um, in this moment of the liturgy, I, I think could be like a real um, like intellectual trip for people. we can get lost in the thought of like, what, what exactly is happening here? How do I put this in the right kind of language to understand what's happening here? That's good and important. You should do that. Um, but again, this, the worship is not a symbol for something else. It doesn't mean something. It, I mean, it does. That's not primarily what it's there for. Worship is something. So before we go, wow, that's really nice of you, Jesus. Like he offered himself. He broke his body. And his blood was poured out for us, that's certainly true. Um, We have to treat Eucharist in this moment of the greater elevation when these things are being held before us, not to like put them in theological categories in our head that make sense, but to actually set our eyes upon these things, to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Deal with the theology of it later. If it's going to make you miss the point, if it's going to make you um, distracted from tending to the presence of Christ, who has come among you and is, is there to be with you, deal with it later. Those objections that you have, they're, they're great objections. I'm not saying dismiss them, but I'm saying I'd invite you to deal with those later. Because oftentimes what can happen is we can get into these like, these spin cycles of thought where we're, like, we start to think about these things, try to process these things. How am I going to explain this to my parents? You know, or just, uh, How do I explain this to my friends at work who are asking me, like, do they really believe this? Put that away for a second and don't miss the fact that Jesus is actually offering his body and his blood. Adore him. Be with him. Because what's at stake here is if, if in our intellectual pursuit, we miss the opportunity to adore Christ and to really be with him, we miss the point of life itself. We miss the point of it all if we don't have that opportunity. Can you imagine John in the river saying, wait a second here. Let's think about what I'm about to say. <laughs> How am I going to explain this to those people? to these Jews who are expecting a Messiah. What are they going to think when I say this? I should, be, I should think through this. No, it, it, uh, the Holy Spirit just led him to confess what was true, and everyone had to kind of deal with it. He had to deal with it, I'm sure. It's probably one of those moments where he's saying these things thinking, really? I guess so. You know, have you ever had those moments? There's something about this elevating of the sacrament that allows the great mystery to be what it is without, our, without having to... Um, attend to our intellectual categories, without having to report to what makes sense to us, it's actually not subject to us. It doesn't matter what we believe about the Holy Eucharist. It's not what we believe or the problems we have with it isn't going to change what it objectively is. When Jesus offers it to us, this is my body, this is my blood. So I hope you're not hearing me say, let's not think carefully about this. No, let's certainly do that. But never at the expense of actually tending to the thing that it is in the first place, the body and blood of Jesus. And I think, friends, if we're talking about mission and becoming missionaries, there, the greater elevation and tending to that is more important than going to seminary or reading a good book about Jesus. It's more tending to Christ's real presence in the Eucharist, adoring him, seeing him, being with him, is there a more important thing? If you, think, if you put this in perspective, is there a more important thing for yourself? Think about your neighbors. What more important thing can you be doing for their sake than to tend to the real presence of Christ in such a way that you partake of his presence? You become his presence. You become, we say, living members of his body. What more missionary thing can a church do than realize that they are the living members of Christ's body now planted in their neighborhood? Your neighbors would be so thrilled to know that a living member of Christ's body lives next door and tends to them out of a love for Christ, out of what Christ has done in them. Like God has been made present to your neighbors when we tend to his presence in the sanctuary, in the Eucharist, and in prayer. Does that make sense? So all of a sudden, and again, you, I, I know this is like broken record, but all of a sudden, the, the, these moments in the liturgy aren't just kind of like um, drive-by moments that are, um, like, we don't love the liturgy because it's ancient and historic. That's super cool. And that's awesome. It's, it's like connected with the tradition of the way Christians have been doing this for a really long time. It's super thoughtful. It's like intellectually rigorous. There's all kinds of like gems and jewels and like go digging. There's, you could play forever in the sandbox of like the historic liturgies. It's amazing. That's not why we love it though. We love it because first and foremost what it is, is the pronouncement of the gospel. Here's what's up. God is reconciling all things to himself through Jesus. And he's made a way to be with you. Now look, here he is. Come and receive him, adore him, be caught up in his life, become a living member of his body. This is a life well spent, folks. I think if you're, if you're ever in a place where you're wondering like, well, um, what, what's next? What's, what's God leading me to do next? Where's my life heading? What does God want from me? Man, I'm in a really tough spot, Sean, recently where I'm like wondering... How am I going to make this work? How's life going to shape up? When am I going to catch a break? All of those things are super important, and I know they're pressing, and I know they're stressful. But the best thing you can do for all of those things is to actually tend to Jesus and his gift to you first, to be with him, to adore him. And all of those things, this is what's strange about this, and I know this is counterintuitive, but when we attend to Christ... All of those things are added. And we seek first his kingdom. You recognize that? Yeah. All of this stuff kind of works out. Maybe not the way we want or plan, but it always works out exactly the way that God ordains it, how he wants it to happen for our good. What's best for us happens when we attend to Jesus. <laughs> and this elevation, um, it's actually not... Something that's super private, something that's just for like the elite Christians who get to be in Holy Eucharist, and this we happen to be here. But this elevation is actually, uh, Rob thinks that I turn everything that's Christian about the liturgy into a, a fight. Maybe because I'm Mexican, um, and everything's like slightly confrontational, and we love that. It's love for us. But I do think there have been moments where, um, as a priest, celebrating the Holy Eucharist and 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 raising up the chalice and the bread, it it feels kind of like while we're recording things. But it feels like, (laughs) take that. Like, that's what's up, world. I have other ways of illustrating that, but you know what I'm saying? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It can be such a subversive act saying you want to know what's true? You want to know what's good? You don't want to know how the world ought to be? It ought to be like this. How should we spend our money? Like this. What should our foreign policy be as a country? Well, it should look something like this. How do I treat my neighbors who are total jerks to me? Probably something like this. <clears throat> How do we raise our children? It looks something like this. All of life is in reference to Jesus who has broken his body and poured out his blood for our sake and for the life of the world. And if Christians, if we could take that seriously, if we can encounter this mystery and behold the face of God in Jesus, our lives will be well spent, spent as they ought to be spent, actually. We'll be fulfilled. We find his goodness. We find his pleasure. And the, the, the most interesting thing happens when we tend to Jesus and his presence in the liturgy. We become the kinds of people who can discern his presence elsewhere and tend to it elsewhere. We become proficient in being able to recognize what God is doing, the Father is doing, and to participate in it. John Chrysostom says this, Do you wish to honor the body of Christ? The church says, yes, we do. Of course, John, then do not disdain him when you see him in rags. After having honored him in church with silk investments, do not leave him to die of cold outside of lack of clothing. For it is the same Jesus who says, this is my body who says I was hungry, but you would not feed me. Whenever you refuse to help one of the least of these important ones, you refuse to help me. What God wants is not so much golden chalices, but golden souls. Folks, how do we learn to recognize Jesus? And not just when we see a poor person feel bad and are led to compassion. But how do we actually recognize the presence of Jesus in the poor and tend to him there? That's tough. Sometimes it's not so clear. You know where we can learn to discern the presence of Christ? Wherever Jesus has promised and assured us that he is certainly there, we can take Holy Eucharist and go, Jesus is here. I'm not sure how exactly, but I know he's really present and it doesn't matter what I think about this. He is objectively present here and I'm going to, by faith, learn to recognize his presence when it's held up in front of me. I'm going to be able to learn and see it so that when I go out the doors of the church, it won't be actually so hard to recognize the presence of Jesus in the poor and those in need and my neighbor's. Even beholding the presence of Jesus changes us. It gives us the eyes to see him wherever he is. This is why if you ever see the church and the process, you all bow. When you see a priest and the deacons at the altar, they bow at one another. They take such care for the linens. It's, it's almost like if you were new to this, you'd be like, this is creepy. Like, what's the deal with all the kissing and the bowing and the fine touching and the rinsing and the, everything is done with the utmost care. You know what's awesome about this? How? Of course we would, like those wrapping Jesus' body in the tomb take such care. Of course, this is the body of God. And what's really beautiful about this is we learn to tend to His presence in these seemingly like really obscure ways, these careful ways. Guess what happens when we go and tend to His body when we find him in the poor? All of a sudden, our bodies have this muscle memory on what it looks like to tend to Jesus' presence in others. We've all of a sudden (coughs) learned to care, to show reverence and respect. Not because we feel guilty, not because we ought to do this because the Bible says this, but completely and totally because we're compelled that we've come in contact with his presence before, we recognize it now, and this is how we know to deal with it. Doesn't that make sense? So all of a sudden, like this like high churchness stuff isn't so snobby after all, is it? But it's actually teaching our bodies the postures of mission and of care and hospitality, giving us the language, the grammar of grace and love. Mother Teresa would tell her sisters that she would train regularly. We are not social workers. We are servants of Christ. Saying, just as we adore Christ in the Eucharist, we find and adore him in all of his distressing disguises. Mm. Including the poor. I think, Rob, you know this too. When you're pulling a maggot out of the leg of a child, you're pulling a maggot out of the leg of Christ. She would say things like that. What kind of worldview do you need to see things that way? Isn't that just radically different?
5: Can you repeat that
1: quote? The last part is more of a paraphrase. But... um, (laughs) Just as we adore Christ in the Eucharist, we find and adore him in all of his distressing disguises. Let's go like that, something like that. Yeah, I can, I can
2: give it to you later. You
1: said yeah. Can I throw another one at you? Well, I'm going to.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, the Oxford Movement tractarian Edward Pusey, who I love, he preached on Christmas Day. He was actually preaching in Christ Church Cathedral in Oxford. It's huge, it's beautiful. And he was preaching about um, there was a, he was preaching to college students and they were really down on themselves because they, they were penitent. They, had real, they were realizing that they were sinning and just needed God's help and so they were really down on themselves. Can you imagine college students like penitent? That's strange to me. But anyways, that was... <laughs> and so Edward Pusey's response, he preaches this sermon about God with us, called God with us, uh, I'm sorry, he preaches a sermon about Christ's real presence in the Eucharist, kind of like what we're talking now, as a comfort to these that, who are penitent. Hey, look, I know you're down. I know that sin has like, plagued you. I get the weight of sin. Christ, but Christ is really present in the Holy Eucharist, and he does ministry to you, to that sin. He abolishes it. He forgives it. In him, you're made new. And in so doing, he preaches so much about the real presence of Christ that at the time, um, Anglicans were like, whoa, dude, you sound super uh, transubstantiationist, like Catholic, allergy, big time. And they kicked him out from preaching for two years in Christ Church Cathedral. This was the Regis professor of Hebrew at Oxford. So this is like a... He's not just some chump. This is, this is like a dude. This is a guy.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: After two years, he comes back from preaching. And they realize, like, okay, you were right. We were overreacting. He comes back, and he preaches this sermon on Christmas Day called God With Us. And he, sa- and he makes this case that he talks about um, how the incarnation like we've talked about. We talked about the ascension. He talks about... Christ's real presence in the Eucharist giving to, given to us. And all of this, he says, we discern Christ's presence in the Holy Eucharist. And listen to the way that he, where he turns to next. This is fascinating. He, we discern Christ's presence in the Holy Eucharist, that we would discern him wherever he's declared himself to be. Especially in the poor, is what he says. He calls the poor the dowry of the church. He calls the poor the wealth of the church. Where has Christ declared himself to be in your neighborhood? Where has he declared himself to be in your workplace? In your home? Hasn't Jesus already threatened you if you have kids not to keep them from him? Be careful. These are like his favorites. How do you tend to him in your children? How do you tend to him in the least of these? If you want to get really, really good at that, I think we've got to get really, really good at tending to him where he's promised and assured us week after week after week where he is, how he's present, even in the sacrament. There's something about the whole Eucharist that actually makes us capable of being the kinds of people that can go and tend to his presence elsewhere. The things that we learn at his table, we take to other tables and extend that same hospitality and goodness of God. And in just, uh, in our last session, we're going we're gonna to pick this up. We're going to talk about, now that we have wrapped our head around the Incarnation and the ascension God coming to us, and now we're tending to his presence in the Holy Eucharist in this moment that has totally given us new sight, new postures of our body, new language, uh, an ability to, be, to, to tend to his presence. We're going to talk about what does it look like then to go out into the world and deal with this, like kind of we just talked about just briefly here. We're going to look at that a little bit. So I'm, I'm done. Is there, anybody have thoughts about this? Any feedback questions? Any observations? Has, has anyone, oh, Misa. I just love the way that you are
5: emphasizing our focus in our union of Christ. Mm-hmm. That is, it's the beginning and the middle and the end of everything.
1: That's what it's all about, huh? Does this encourage anyone to um, inhabit our worship life a little bit different? Sir, Steve?
4: Uh, I wanted to make a comment about when you were talking about the elevation or the adoration of the Eucharist. Yeah. Um, I think it's important to to not only grasp it on an emotional, uh, maybe non-linear level, but I think it's important to know the theology too. Mm-hmm. Both. Yep. I I I'm really uh, you know, I'm kind of I'm very wary of Christianity that is either totally in the head, right, or totally emotional, right. That we need balance, and and I you know I come from a background that's very uh, intellectual, mm-hmm. and I, I think that it's important to. I I like to think of it as we grasp the theology with a sense of wonder, with a sense of awe. That's reverence. That's, that's, uh, in other words, to kind of go, yeah, I need to kind of understand the adoration, you know, the actual holding the elements up. But at the same time, I'm thinking, what a wonderful, what a wonderful uh, hope that is beyond any kind of thinking.
1: Oh, right. And,
4: and I think that, that, that something I want to encourage our church to do is to is to be in balance. Yep. Because I think outsiders will come in and they'll, they'll see things. They'll either go, oh, man, these guys are so intellectual. They're I can't even get into it. Or they'll come in and they'll go, oh, these guys are so emotional. I can go to a... A show and see that. Right,
1: right. That's what I thought. Yep, I I appreciate that, Stephen. Up. So you're right, the, the priests and the deacons, they are, like those poor souls, they're like the, the, the priests sent into the holy holies with a rope tied on them, that in case something goes down, we'll pull them out, like you know those poor people. Um, but when that meal is shared with God's people, you still have some tending to do. Um, and there are great ways to really like, become aware of. This is a very like I need to tend very carefully to this. You'll hold your hands out in a certain way, there, and there's even theology in this. We don't reach in and take the gifts of God for ourselves. It's not, we actually have nothing to do with that, but we receive the grace of God. And there's some catechisms in the early church to talk about holding our hands and as a throne for the King. Um, and even after we receive Holy Eucharist, or sometimes when it's fed to us, which is even more like intimate and you know it's intimate. Um, we 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 still have a job to do. And, and actually, when we receive Holy Eucharist, we come to this is the one meal in all of human experience that when we come to consume it, it actually consumes us. And we can reflect on that by making the sign of the cross on us saying, Lord, verify this in my life. Like, amen. May I be one with you. So even making the sign of the cross can be a way of now like now you are Holy Eucharist. Now tending to yourself is part of tending to the whole Eucharist. And one way we can do that is to say, God sanctify this body. Tend to me. Lord, yes, may it be so in my life. So there's a theologian that says that actually Christ's real presence in the Eucharist is verified when we, um, when we go and serve the poor. When you see the fruit of his presence. <coughs> in Christ, which is interesting. So I would say, um, I think you do tend to it. Maybe not as much as the priests and deacons, but you certainly do tend to it. And your bodily postures throughout the liturgy. Not just, when I say Holy Eucharist, I do mean the sacrament, but I also mean the whole of the liturgy
2: mm.
1: is Holy Eucharist. And we can't, it, you can't really separate the two. That's a whole thing. So your, the way you tend to your body, um, the way you use your body to tend to the real presence of Christ throughout the entire service is tending to Christ's presence.
3: So are you saying then, when we're like tending to ourselves,
1: we're tending to the poor? Well, you are the poor. lots of ways yeah certainly but then there are actual poor you know so i don't want to like um make a metaphor out of them or something Like they, they exist
0: i think one of the things that that i got out of it is that is that basically we're talking about a series of moments and it's you want to be in the moment you don't want to be missing the moment like thinking about, about the theology behind the moment mm. because then you're not present so it's, it's really just making sure that as these moments occur that you're in the moment and, and whether it's in the moment by yourself in the moment with the priest who's conducting the service there's something going on there that's bigger than just you and you need to pay attention to it Right,
1: uh, Father Rob I remember him saying all the time we argue so much about how Christ is present in the Eucharist we don't really often consider, like, how we're made present to Him. Like, are we present? He certainly is. It can be so tough sometimes, especially when you've got, like, kids crawling all over you, or you just come in from, like, a really hard week. It's really hard to be present, but you're right. That's part of it. Um, I-, I missed you, like, nine times. I'm sorry. I found it really
3: beautiful. I think just in worshiping it.
1: Just because I don't feel like he's here doesn't yeah. mean he's not here. Yeah. That can be kind of free or helpful. Yeah, and I think to just even open up for yourself to be like, okay, yeah, there's all these moments where he says he's here. And so look for him. You know, learn to recognize him. And it's not that he's not here, but we need to train ourselves to recognize him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have, we have we should probably wrap up, Rob. Yeah, unless, there's, unless something's burning. Something's burning? Anybody, do you, anybody else need to say something?
5: I just wanted to comment about... Um,
2: Misa's got something that's burning.
5: Being, um, doing altar guild. Doing altar guild is, you know, I used to be, before I was involved in it, I just used to look at it as basically doing laundry and dishes. And thought, I never want to do that. <laughs> and, yeah, I've come to understand it as a very sacred and holy and that it is tending to the Eucharist and it's tending to Christ. Mm-hmm. And as you shared, um, um, you were talking about the linens, and I, I had that exact experience as I was ironing the linens. Uh, me too. I do it in prayer. Y- y'all should iron some linens. <laughs> and as I was ironing them, I just, this was, I think it was during Advent, I mean, not Adam, during um, Lent. Yeah, that other season. The purple season. <laughs> um, that the Lord just gave me the sense that I wasn't ironing something to go on a table in a building, that I was ironing the, it, it was like having the very piece of cloth that was around, wrapped mm. around his head mm. that was folded up.
1: Do you know what that cloth is into, called? That's the reason we call it a corporal. Oh,
5: that's called a corporal?
1: The big one that goes underneath uh-huh. the, yeah.
2: That's
5: what I was
1: learning. Yeah. That's cool. Like corpus.
5: <coughs> body. Wow. And it was just it was like it was wasn't a piece of cloth. Yeah, she's,
1: yeah. It was it was
5: me, so. embodied by Christ and I just felt um like what I was doing was
1: eternally extremely significant. Can I, can I say one thing and then we'll call it quits? Um what, what I'm not arguing for, and this, is, this isn't... You just made me think of another thought. What I'm not arguing for is for us to become these like, closed-off, really pietistic weirdies with the liturgy, and like we're really into this stuff. I think that's actually really ugly. It can get really ugly, and enclosed, and ingrown. It's just not, not at all. What I'm actually saying is... Uh, and I don't think you're actually doing the liturgy well when, when that's happening. For us to really inhabit our worship life, to do the liturgy well, um, is to not only tend to... like to have the right motivations and awareness about what's, what we're actually doing. We don't love the iron cloths because that's why we've always done that. And if you don't do that, you're going to get scolded, and we're going to have this really weird culture where we have to do everything right you know, and offend people. No, none of that. But we're doing this because we really love Jesus, and we want to be near him. And another thing I'll say is when we, um, as as sacramental liturgical Christians, when you see that kind of care in worship paired with, and we're going to talk, I'm going to like, I'm pointing already to where I'm getting at, but. And you see that paired with a, a really robust presence in the world and participation with mission and serving the poor. Usually we just see like super missional churches or super like sacramental churches. But when you see both of them together as a whole, they both make more sense. You see the full picture. That's what we're after. That's what Christians have like always done. And so we want to just be normal Christians, right? Okay, let's stop there.
0: You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.